I mentioned a few weeks ago that I felt like I needed to bring my thoughts to a close or conclusion on the series that we had kind of been off and on looking at, the Lost Truth series. And again, I don't know if this is the last one or not, but I have this on my mind, and I think it ties directly into that series. So we want to call this sermon in the Lost Truth series, The Seeker-Friendly Church. Or you could say, Seeker-Friendly Worship. And we look to Ephesians, the first chapter. The next few verses that we look at after we spoke the last time on the king's engagement ring. Let's begin reading in verse 15. Paul says, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Now listen to the language as we get to our text. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet and gave him, that's Christ, to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. We want to talk this morning, as I said, about the seeker-friendly church or the seeker-friendly worship experience. I did some statistics, looked them up online, and some statistics say that there's 30 to 40,000 denominations in the world. It listed 200 in America. I think that's low. And in terms of the Christians in the world, it lists about 2 billion of Christians of all different denominations. That's, that is, in one way, that's encouraging. <laughs> when you think about, what is there, 7 billion, maybe 8 billion going on eight. That's kind of encouraging to know that there are that many Christians in the world, two, two plus billion. Of those two plus billion, the records, the statistics show that the majority of those are Catholic. It would be one billion plus that are Catholic. And after the days of the Reformation in the 1600, excuse me, 14, 15, 1600s, when the Reformation was at its peak, that was a time when a lot of different groups began to split off. Now listen, let me just say this very clearly. I've said this many times. You won't hear this hardly anywhere, and you won't see it in the statistics. But remember, as Baptists, you are not Protestants. You are not a Protestant. The Baptists did not protest and come out of the Catholic Church. And if you look at some of the honest Statistics, you'll see that they'll have a little line above all the rest of the Reformation split outs. And the line above that will say Anabaptists. And it'll list that line as coming from way before the time of the Catholics and still continuing. And you are of that line of Anabaptists. You do not come from the Catholic Church. Amen. Now, that's de- a lot of folks will debate that and say, well, you got any proof of that? Yeah, the proof is in the blood. You can, you can trace the church of God by the blood of the martyrs. Okay, so we're gonna, we're not, this is not going to be primarily a history lesson, but this is, this is a lost truth. The worship of God, the church of God, is, is diluted, and it's a lost truth. 
Just like that truth of predestination. Just like that truth of forgiveness of our sins. Just like that truth of redemption. Those things have been lost through time and through neglect. Often by us. (laughs) So you're not a Protestant. You never protested anything. You professed. Your ancestors professed. Okay? Now... In the time of the Reformation, you come on down to the days of our country being formed. Appreciate the prayer this morning. We certainly need to pray for our leaders. Whether we voted for them or not, we need to pray for them. But in the days of 1700, specifically in 1776, there were only about five notable groups of organized Christian worshipers in the days of our, the founding of our country. And they were Baptists, Quakers, some Catholics... Episcopalians, which would have been Church of England, all right, and Congregationalists. But there was only about five of groups around. And I've told you this before, in terms of the history of those five or six groups, three out of four churchgoers out of those five or six groups, three out of four churchgoers were predestinarian, all right? They, they believed in the doctrine that we've heard read here this morning. It wasn't, a, it wasn't an issue it was, oh, yes, that's in the Bible. Yes, I believe it. I understand it. Today, you'd be hard-pressed to find one out of 500 walking down the street that would understand what that is or at least would be open to understanding what that is. So it's very important to understand this lost truth about worship. Now, I want to just focus in on the area of where the church at Ephesus was, Asia Minor. We preach from the book of Ephesians a lot. The church at Ephesians is mentioned in the Revelation. It's the first church that Jesus sent a message to. Where is that church today? It's gone. As a matter of fact, the area in which this church was is 99.8% Muslim. 99.8% Muslim. 0.2% Christian. They went from revival about 2,000 years ago to ruin. There's, There's hardly any presence of truth or Christianity there. So here's the question. Can we identify the Lord's church? And can we see that it is still around today? I think of it like this. The Lord's church, it has got to be either everywhere, nowhere, or somewhere. (laughs) You understand? You think about two billion Christians. You could just say, well, the Lord's church is just everywhere, you know, among all those two billion. Or it's nowhere. It went out of sight and disappeared, which would go against the words of Jesus, who Jesus said in Matthew 16, the gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. What he meant by that was, it's going to be here somewhere. So I believe that. I believe that. So it's either everywhere, nowhere. I believe it's somewhere. Okay? So can we identify that? You remember we started off in this series from Acts, the second chapter. If you want to look back there in Acts, the second chapter. And we found where the apostles taught the first church. And they did basically four things. We're talking about the seeker-friendly church and worship experience. And this is what they did in the first church that was established. Acts, the second chapter, verse 41, they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto him 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in four things, four simple things. Don't we need it simple? I've said this on the radio for 14 or 15 years of preaching on the radio. And if there's one area of God's children of their life that needs to be simple it needs to be worship it needs to be in the worship of the lord and this is simple it says they continued steadfastly in the apostles doctrine the first and most important thing i believe that was a characteristic of the church of god is they preached and they taught 
what Jesus had taught them. That's the apostles' doctrine. And fellowship. Remember these four things? And in breaking of bread. That means they sat and they ate together. It also means communion. They had communion together. And in prayers. That's so simple. You see, I want to know what the Lord requires of me in worship today. In this 2022 age, this time that we're living in, He requires us, according to this, to continue in the apostles' doctrine, to continue in fellowship, to continue in breaking of bread, and continue in prayers. And we talked extensively about what that doctrine is. But I want you to see this, that the church, the experience of the church and the experience of worship and the experience of the doctrine, the fellowship, the prayers, and the breaking of bread, it all played out in the context of the church. You understand that? You know, it wasn't, okay, well, we'll just you know, have our own idea about what to do over here. No, everything they experienced in the book of Acts played out in the context of the church, which involved these four things. Now listen, God intends for the best part of your life, the most solid part of your life, God intends for that to be experienced through the church of God. You know, it's His formation. We'll see that in just a minute. It's His formation. I didn't come up with it. You didn't come up with it. Somebody a hundred years ago didn't come up with it. God said... I'm leaving my church here and it is the full expression of what I want you to experience until I return or until you breathe your last breath in this life. So God intended for his people to have the best part of experience in their life through the church of God. Listen, if you go to school, it's a fun experience. It can be. Now, some people, it's a nightmare (laughs) going to school. I mean, I hated the study part of it, but I enjoyed the interactions with my friends and so forth. But you know what? In 1989, in May, there came a time after I'd spent 13 years of my life with those fellas and girls and boys, and we had to go our separate ways. You know, I had to graduate, go on and do my thing. Many of them went on and did their thing. You know, school's great. It can be great. It can be a nightmare for some people. But school can be great, but you've got to graduate. It's got to end. My son back there, he's about to graduate, and all of that is going to end. It's going to change. It's a shift. Now, There's some people that don't ever get over that. You know that? They still live like they're in school. You understand? Childish ways and so forth. But school's going to end. You have to graduate. I'm living proof that the band breaks up. (laughs) You know, for eight years, I had a band. We toured around the southeast, and we had some good times and opened up for some great people and had some fun doing that. But the band had to break up. Now, I don't have anything against those guys. I don't spend any time with them because I had to go a different direction. I don't hold it against whatever direction they went, but the band ran its course. The band had to break up. It was kind of funny. A couple weeks ago when Brother Neil and Brother Luke were both here, you know, and Brother Neil preached, I preached, and Brother Luke preached. I think it was Brother Darby. As we were walking out, he said, man, I'm glad you got the band back together. <laughs> That's a different band now. We're not talking about the band I used to play in, okay? So you say, well, what about my life playing out in the context of work? Well... I don't know if you realize this or not, but one of these days, if you're working, you may retire. It has to come to an end, you see? Or you may not like where you work, and you quit, and you go somewhere else and work somewhere else. You see, that has to run its course. You have to graduate from school. The band never stays together. Work is going to run its course. We say, well, there's always family. I was reading one of the reports that Sister Rhonda or Sister Nanette gave me from Ukraine, And it was about a man who had two children and a wife and a bomb fell on their apartment and killed them all, except for the husband, except for the man. You know, God forbid that would ever happen to any of you. Pray for that fellow. I don't even know his name. 
But that affected me. His family just gone, just like that. You understand family can disappear just like that. That's a sad, tragic situation. You know, people can have differences in their family. You know, Jesus said, behold, I come to send a sword. I'm going to divide the mother against the daughter-in-law, the father against the son-in-law, the brother against the brother. You say, what does that mean? That means sometimes that not even your family can sustain the context of what God intended for you to experience in this life. He intended for you to experience the best part of your life through the church of God. Okay, so I ask you today, if you're not experiencing that, then you need to analyze that because that's what he intended. Families can disappear just out of nowhere. A bomb drops and they're gone. You can retire, quit from work. <laughs> the band breaks up, the, grad, the schools graduate, but the church of God remains, you see? And the church of God is described as your mother. That's, it says Jerusalem, which is above, which is the mother of us all. It's like a mother to us, you see? Now listen, quick survey of the occurrences of the word church and the word of God, especially in the book of Acts. I want you to just listen to this. I'm, I'll give you these sites later if you want them, but I'm going to run through them real quick. It's very interesting, the descriptions of the church of God. And remember, it was new. It was something very new. It's not the way they did things for centuries in the Jewish economy, in the Jewish culture. It was the temple worship, and now it's changed. God changed that through the work of Christ. Now, these are mostly from the book of Acts, but... Matthew 16, Jesus says, it's my church. You remember that? He says, behold, upon this confession, upon the confession that Christ is the Son of God, I will build my church. So it's not yours, and it's not mine. It's not Brother Tim's church. Jesus says, it's my church. Matthew 18, Jesus says, there's some things that you may wind up having to tell to the church. In Acts, the second chapter, it says, the church was added to. People joined the church. Acts 5, it says, great fear came upon the church. Just beyond Acts 5, it says great persecution came upon the church. In Acts 8, it says that Saul, who became Paul the apostle, Saul, it says that he wreaked havoc on the church. Acts 11, it says that something came to the ears of the church. Acts 11 and 26, it says the church assembled. Acts 12 and 1, it says the church was vexed. Acts 12 and 5, it says prayer was made without ceasing by the church. In Acts 13, it says there were prophets and teachers in the church. In Acts 14, there were elders ordained in every church. Acts 14 and 27, the church was gathered. Acts 15 says that the church brought these brothers on their way. It also says that the church received certain people. It says the whole church was gathered. In Acts 20 and 17, it says the elders of the church gathered. Acts 20 and 28, it says that the church was to be fed, to feed the church of God. So the church can eat. And it's not talking about physical food. Romans 16 and 5, it says that there was a church in somebody's house. You know, I've told you before, the idea of the building was a new thing through the years. It was house church. And I'm not advocating, well, let's all go back to the house church. It's a great place to assemble. But the church, the brick and the mortar of this building is not the church. You see, you are the church. The people are the church. 1 Corinthians 4 and 17, he says, to teach this in every church. The church is, comes together. He says, speak this in the church. Ephesians 1, I just read to you, it says, Christ is the head of his church. Acts 3 and 21, it says, unto him be the glory in the church. The church is described as his body. A couple more. 1 Timothy 3 and 15, he describes the church as the house of God which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Hebrews 2 and 12, it's notable to say that we're commanded to sing in the church. It says that in Hebrews 2 and 12. 
And of course, I've already told you in Revelation, Jesus says, speak this, write this to the churches, the seven churches of Asia. Remember, that wasn't the only churches. That's just the ones he told to write to. So what is the church? You see, it says the church has ears. You tell things to the church. It says the church gathered, the church this, the church that. Well, the word itself is the Greek word, ekklesia, which just means a called out assembly, a Christian community. If you know anything about etymology, I like the study of words. That's just me. I'm weird. I know. I'm a nerd. (laughs) I like etymology. That's the study of words. And you say, well, I wanted to know where the word church comes from. So I did a little etymological study. That's impressive, isn't it? (laughs) And so the word church comes from the old English word kirke, C-I-R-C-E in the 13th century. And it refers to the body or the location of where people were gathered to worship. It also comes from the Greek word kurios, which means Lord, and oikia, which means house. So the house of the Lord. It was a combined word from the Lord and house, the Lord's house. And the Greek word is kurikon. In the Middle Ages, they shortened that word to kurikon, and it's an Old Norse word. I know y'all are loving this. You're going to remember it all too. The Old Norse word is kirkja, and then the Scots took it. The Scottish people took it, and they turned it into kirk. And my former law partner's name was Mr. Buddy Kirk. I don't know if he knows it or not, but that's where the word Kirk comes from. It's from Scotland, and it is the word that the Scottish still use today for church. And you understand, we've turned it into church, from Kirk to church. So when you go to Scotland and you see the Kirk, they're talking about the church. So that's where the word church comes from. It's the Scottish word Kirk. Jesus said in Matthew 21 and 13, as he went into the temple... And he saw the sellers of things in the temple. You know, they were bartering. They were taking advantage of the people. They had turned the house of God. They turned the worship of God into a place of merchandise. Okay? The house of God is not a place of merchandise. It is a place of worship. And Jesus says in Matthew 21, 13, he said, My house should be or shall be a house of prayer. And the word prayer means worship. So Jesus is saying, I want my house to be a place of worship, not a place where people are buying and selling. And, you know, he ran the sheep and the goats and all the cattle out of the temple. He was angry that they had turned his house into a house of merchandise. Now, look, we're not going to cast any stones or anything, but I'm just telling you, church in the modern religious world is big business. It's big business. If you've ever gone to a church and you, sometimes there's cards right there and if I visit or go to a funeral or whatever, I always pull those cards out and nine times out of ten, practically ten times out of ten, they won't know how much money you make. Child of God, let me tell you something. That is turning the house of God into a house of merchandise. Okay, We don't come to find out how much money you make. We don't come to offer the proof of what we make so we can find out what we can give. That is a personal experience between the child of God and and his Lord to find out what the Lord would burden them to give. You don't have to put it down on a card. It turns the house of God into a house of merchandise. What do you think Jesus would do if he went into the houses of God today and he sat down and picked up one of those cards? Because he knows they're there already because he's God. But I think he'd be looking for a scourge of small cords and run all those cards out of there. See, it's not about money. Jesus said, my house is not about money. It's not about merchandise. It's about worship. (laughs) So what should a great worship experience consist of? I already told you in the Word of God, it says in the book of Hebrews, the second chapter, Jesus himself said, sing in the house of God. (laughs) I tell you, when I hear you sing, 
It is worship. It speaks to me. I know it honors the Lord. It doesn't matter if you're on note, off note. That's not the point. He says make a joyful noise to the Lord. He didn't say make a perfect sound. (laughs) And if all you can do is just croak like a bullfrog, well then croak like a bullfrog to the praise of God. It's okay. (laughs) It doesn't have to be a perfect note. Don't ever forget that. It's not about singing the right tenor, harmony, bass, alto, lead. It is about making a joyful noise to the Lord. And we ought to sing when we come together. And some of you could sing a little louder. And some of you could start singing. (laughs) No amens on that. Anyway. uh, So sing. We already read there in the book of Acts that it says they came together and talked about the doctrine of the Lord. We need to hear about the Word of God. You know, in this day and time, the Word of God has become the least important part of a worship service. We need to hear about the Word of God. I don't know the last time that I put up three preachers on a Sunday morning, a couple Sundays ago, and I was a little bit nervous about doing that, but I know the brothers that I put up, they will observe the time in a very expedient way. And you know what? I found out we got out of church sooner with those three brothers than we did sometimes when it's just me up here preaching. (laughs) Because I don't know when to hush sometimes. That day I knew I had to hush. (laughs) But Brother Neil got up here and preached 20 minutes. The Word of God, he spoke of who is truth. Not what is truth, but who is truth. And then Brother Luke got up here and he talked about how we are saved and delivered through our confessions. He took about 20 minutes. And then I closed out with about 20 minutes of talking about the promise ring of the king. (laughs) Maybe that helps you remember. We were done by 12 o'clock. I don't think more than three is very expedient. And I rarely will do that. But brothers and sisters... If we all got laryngitis and couldn't sing, we still need to hear the Word of God. You see, God wants you to hear His Word. And He wants you to hear the truth. We're going to see that here in just a minute. Now, what does a great worship experience consist of? Sing, preach, pray. Now look, I told you the church is the people. This is an important aspect of your history as a Baptist and also in terms of how you worship. Several years ago, we traveled up into New England. And we got together with one of the preachers up there, and he took us on a church tour, a Baptist church tour, because the oldest Baptist churches in the United States are in New England. Okay, and one of those churches that we went to was the Welch Track Church, came from Wales, England. I've told you all about that church before. In the 1600s, around 1698, that church transplanted from Wales over to America. And a huge majority of all Baptist churches have come from that church and a couple others that we'll mention here because they flow down into the south, into South Carolina, and on across into Georgia, and on into Alabama, Mississippi, Texas, so forth and so on. Didn't mean to skip Louisiana there. (laughs) Louisiana, Texas. All right, listen. The Welch Track Church, as I've told you, it has a written history. You know how we keep minutes? You say, well, what's the point of that? It's kind of helpful sometimes, especially 600 years later, 800 years later, The Welch Tract Baptist Church has a written history back to the 1200s. It has a written history to the 1200s. If y'all don't care anything about history, then you need to get over it because that's important. (laughs) If you don't care anything about history, then history just keeps repeating itself. That's a long time back to the 1200s. And they have an oral tradition, a spoken tradition before they started writing things down all the way back to the days of the apostles. And a legend is in that church or was in that church that the Apostle Paul visited Wales and preached to them. That's crazy, isn't it? You say, it's impossible that a church like that could still be in existence in some form. 
Just assume that that's true, that the Apostle Paul visited Wales, established that church. They have a written record from 1200, and it came to America, transplanted to America in 1700, 1698. And now all, many of the churches we experience or know today, whether it's Southern Baptist, Missionary Baptist, Free Will Baptist, all these Baptist brands, they come from those churches. Is it that outlandish to think that it goes all the way back to the time of the apostles? I don't think so. If you assume that that's true, you got a direct link all the way back to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ appeared to the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul established, if he established that church. So we went and visited. Yeah, that church still meets, by the way. It's very small, very low. It only meets a couple times a month. But we went there. And above the entryway of that church, and it says BM. Above the entryway to that church. BM. And of course, I inquired and kind of did some research on what that means. And that BM means Baptist Meeting House. They didn't even call it church. They called it a meeting house because they had a clear, concise understanding of what church is and church was and church should be. It's just a meeting house. You know, if we put BM above the door out here as you come in, it just means this is where we meet. You are the church. By the way, we went to London Track Church in New Jersey, which is another Baptist church, 1706. The land for that church was bartered from the Indians by William Penn. Have you ever heard of the man who founded Pennsylvania? We also went to, I think we went to Hopewell. I know we went to Old Brick Church, Brickyard Church. But Hopewell, New Jersey was established in 1750 by Elder John Gano, who it is believed baptized George Washington as a Baptist. And all these churches, and Old Brick Church in Maryland, 1722, all these churches have BM above them, Baptist Meeting House. Now, the reason they had that is because back in those days, and, and you, you free Americans are really going to like this, but back in those days, before the country was formed, they had to get a charter from King George in order, in order to even meet. You say, well, those people were probably proud of that BM up there, Baptist Meeting House. I don't think they were. I think it was a shame to them when they saw it and thought, Man, you know, we had to get permission from the king to even call this a meeting house. I tell you, we're living in a different day now, aren't we? That shocks the conscience to think that you had to do that. Those people were willing to do whatever they needed to do to meet. Baptist meeting house. So the summary of church is the church of God exists. The church of God was set up by Christ. The church of God is here somewhere. As I said, it's everywhere, nowhere, or somewhere. So for the last few minutes, let's focus on the worship. A seeker-friendly worship experience. Look with me to John, the fourth chapter. Because that's exactly what is going on when Jesus comes to the woman at the well. John, the fourth chapter, as we conclude our thoughts here on a seeker-friendly worship experience. Look at John 4. Of course, you know there the context is Jesus left Judea, departed into Galilee, and made a detour through Samaria. Now, y'all think this racism that's fomented out there today, which by the way, as long as people are talking about hate and hatred and talk about how hateful people are, it's going to stir up hatred and strife and racism. See, that's part of the plan of some of these groups is to keep it stirred up so it'll constantly be on your mind. Oh, there's so much hatred. There's so much racism out there. But at the same time, is it really? <laughs> you know, they're just trying to stir that up. You talk about racism now between the Jews and the Samaritans, they wouldn't speak to each other. They wouldn't have anything to do with each other. They hated each other. It was thick with racism. Now, Jesus detours into Samaria, which would be a place that a Jewish person would not normally go, ever. 
And he comes to a city of Samaria on the parcel of the ground that Jacob gave to his son. This is John 4 and verse 6. Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. It's about noon. This is high noon. It's a high noon showdown. <laughs> and there cometh the woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus says, give me to drink. This was very unusual for a Jewish man to speak to a, a Samaritan, especially a woman. And it's very strange that this woman was coming out in the middle of the day because the women usually drew their water early in the morning or late in the afternoon. I think you'll find when you see what kind of woman this was, why she was coming in the middle of the day where she wouldn't encounter anybody else. Right? So Jesus says, give me to drink. And the woman says, verse 9, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And Jesus said, If thou knewest the gift of God and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, of me, of Jesus, and he would have given thee living water. The woman said unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with. See, she's thinking physical. She's thinking, he's talking about the water down in the well. He said, Thou hast nothing to draw with. The well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? You see, the Samaritans took a heritage from Jacob also. But the Samaritans are the ones that would have been in the northern kingdom when Israel split apart from Judah. So there was a lot of racism that went on. In other words, these Jewish people would say, you're not a real Jew. You know, you're not a real child of God because you're not Jewish. You're not from Judah. There's a lot of racism. But notice how this little child of God here, the woman at the well, you know, she claims that root back to Jacob. And Jesus says, Whosoever drinketh of this water, referring to the natural water, shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. And the woman said, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. And then Jesus, he, as he often does, he kind of turns the situation on its head. He gets real personal. You know, do you understand that's part of what God intended in worship and in preaching and in studying the Word of God? You know, He wants to get into your personal life. He wants you to know that He sees everything we do even when we think nobody's looking. He wants you to know that He is there and that He has an answer for whatever issue it is that you're facing. And so Jesus says, go call your husband and come hither. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said, Thou hast well said, you've confessed truthfully. I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And he whom thou now hast is not thy husband, in that sets thou truly. He said, the person that you're living with right now is not your husband. You're living in sin. You're living in fornication. Now, this woman, it sounds like somebody out of Hollywood, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, it sounds like somebody that just trades up husband or wife just at the drop of a hat. It sounds like Hollywood. Of course, you know... It's not just Hollywood nowadays, for sure. But this woman is, especially in this culture at this time, she is an outcast. She's not just an outcast as far as the Jews were concerned. She's an outcast among her own people. Jesus knows every tiny little detail about her life. Now, if you're trying to hide something, that can be unnerving. <laughs> if you don't have anything to hide, you can just say, Lord, thou knowest, thou knowest. But we can't hide anything from the Lord. So the woman says, Sir, I perceive thou art a prophet. Jesus changed the subject to her personal life. Now she's trying to change the subject to something else. She's a little nervous. This is where the people say, Oh, preacher, you're stepping on my toes today when you're preaching. You know, Jesus, he's not trying to step on her toes, as I've told you many times. He's going straight to the heart of the matter. You see? 
He's going to the heart. And she says, I perceive you're a prophet. You know this about me. You must be a prophet. Our fathers, now watch, here we go, worshipped in this mountain. What's the subject? Worshipped. And you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Now, you see what's set up here? The woman says, we were told all of our life, and because grandmother and granddaddy and great-grandfather and great-granddaddy and mom and daddy did a certain thing in worship, well, that's what we're supposed to do. You know, our fathers told us to go here to this place in Samaria. You know, and we're supposed to worship the Lord at this place, at this mountain in Samaria, which you can read about the history of all that and how that got started a thousand years before. And and it went down for a thousand years. And so our folks told us we go over here and worship. And she looks at Jesus and she says, but your folks, the Jews say that we ought to worship down there in Jerusalem. You see, there's a controversy. Nobody knows where to worship. (laughs) See, they're seeking a place to worship. And so she says, Jerusalem is the place we ought to worship. So our father said, go up here. And the Jews say, Jerusalem is the place to worship. And Jesus says, now listen to this. Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain, that's in Samaria, nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. The knowledge of salvation was among the Jewish people at that time. But the hour cometh and now is. You catch that right there? Now is the hour, Jesus says, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship Him. The one who is a Muslim is told that they must travel over into the Middle East to the city of Mecca in order to pay homage to the false god Allah. That that's what you have to do to be a good Muslim. And then there are others that have said through the years, well, you know, we got to get that temple rebuilt back up over there in Jerusalem so we can be true worshipers and we can go over there. Or some people say, well, you got to go to Rome in order to be fulfill your obligation to worship the Lord. You see, Jesus says it's not about the location anymore. It's not about going up into this mountain to worship God. It's not about going down to the Jewish temple to worship God anymore. The Father is seeking such to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Did you catch my little twist on the seeker-friendly worship experience? Who is the seeker? In the modern religious mentality, you know, I'm the seeker trying to seek and find what I think I need to fulfill my needs for worship. But the Scripture says the Father is the seeker. So we're looking for the seeker-friendly worship experience. The Father is the seeker. It says, the Father seeketh such to worship Him. Did you know God is seeking you? He's seeking His children throughout all of the world. He's seeking those that will worship Him in spirit and in truth. That will seek and find that worship experience that is the context in which He desires for His children to play out. Play out is not a good word. It's not like you're playing. We're not playing. But to experience church and their life. God is the seeker. Look what it says. The hour cometh and now is when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. That's the red letters. Jesus is making it very clear. There's a change coming. He said there's a change here now. You're not going up to the mountain. You're not going down to Jerusalem. The Lord seeks those to worship Him in spirit and in truth. What is worship? The basic definition of the word worship there is the image of a dog licking his master's hand. That's the image of worship. A dog licking his master's hand. 
You ever been walking along, maybe walking with your dog or walking your dog? Now, that's not ever going to happen with Frankie. <laughs> uh, unless Frankie learns how to jump two feet, you know, he can't get up to your hand. He's only that tall. <laughs> Abigail's Frankie. But <laughs> normally a dog's walking along, you're walking, that dog will come up and lick your hand. You know, that's the image that is given of worship. So as we come to worship the Lord, we should have that mentality of we're nothing more than dogs coming to lick the hand of our master. You see? He said, well, that offends me, Brother Tim. You can't call me a dog. Well, tell that to the Samaritan woman who came petitioning the Lord for her child. And Jesus turned her away three times, maybe four. She said, Lord, help me. She was Samaritan, by the way. Not this woman, a different woman. My child is sick and dying. Jesus just ignored her. And then she continued to come and continued. And Jesus said, shall we give the children's meat to dogs? And the woman said, yay, truth, I am a dog. But the dogs eat of the crumbs from the master's table. I tell you, that's the mentality I want. That's the kind of worship experience I want. Lord, I'm not worthy to come into your service. I'm not worthy to approach your throne of grace. I'm not worthy to stand before you and call upon your name. I'm not worthy to preach the word of God. But in his grace and his mercy, as we are nothing more than just like dogs coming before to pay uh, obedience and to pay homage to our master. You see, we eat of the crumbs that fall from the master's table. By the way, he healed that woman's daughter. Worship is to adore to reverence, to pay respect. Father seeketh such to worship Him in spirit and in truth. All right, let's speak about that for just a moment. The word spirit means breath. It also can mean mind. I've told you how many times through the years. I'm not after your soul. The Lord Jesus Christ is taking care of your soul. He saved your soul on Calvary. But I am after your mind. I want your mind. I want you to be captivated by the Word of God. I want you to be enthralled by what God says about you and your future. See, I want your mind. That's what the worship experience should be, to focus our minds on something. And the very breath that we have, if it's in song, if it's in prayer, if it's just breathing and being here present, it should be to glorify the Lord. He says the Father seeketh such. The Father is seeking those that will give Him their minds. You know, a lot of people stand up today and say, well, give the Lord your heart. <laughs> There's nothing in the Scripture that says anything about that. The Lord takes the heart when He wants to take it. You see? He's not begging anybody for anything. He's not pleading anybody for anything. The Lord takes what He wants when He wants it. Just like the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. He took His heart. He didn't offer it to Him. But the Lord wants your mind. To come away from the filth of the world. To come away from your own plans and devices. To come to the Word of God and say, it's so simple. He said, my life's so complicated. One area ought to be simple, and that is worship. The Lord seeketh such. The seeker-friendly church, the seeker-friendly worship experience is God seeking you to worship Him in spirit and in truth. The word seek right there where it says the Father seeketh such, it is from the Hebrew word that means to seek to worship. <laughs> to inquire. It makes me think of the book of Revelation, the third chapter, where the Lord says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. You know, that's not God knocking on the heart's door of the child of God to get in. That is God knocking on the door of the church at Laodicea and say, Hey guys, you've left me outside. That's what it is. We often talk about what it's not. But what it is, is God petitioning the church, knocking on the door of the church. Can you imagine a church where the Lord is outside knocking to get inside? Some of y'all that were falling asleep, that woke you up. I'll do it again. (laughs) 
The Lord's knocking on the door of the church to get inside. How many churches today may the Lord be standing on the outside and knocking on the door just saying, will you let me in? Will you let me in? You see, God is seeking children of God who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. You see, this is not about my personal preference or what I think. It's about God's preference. What does God think? What does God say? It's not about location or personal preference. God is seeking and He's looking for you, child of God. Now, why are the churches across the land, with exceptions here and there, a few exceptions, why are churches across the land small and getting smaller? That's a fact. I mean, it's a sad fact. If you read the statistics, and statistics are very troubling. I try to stay away from them. <laughs> but churches are smaller, not just primitive Baptist church. I'm talking about in general. You know, Christianity is declining. Why? I think, these are my own opinions now. Number one, I think that people have lost sight about what they need to see when they come to worship. You know, we're in the seeker-friendly church mentality. What's good for me? Well, you know, God knows what's good for you. You don't have to worry. Well, these people over here say it ought to be done this way, and these say this, and these say this, and these. What does God say? What does God say about worship? The Lord says, I want you to see me when you come to worship. <laughs> now look, I'm a vain person, I know that, and I'm prideful, and I have to repent of that all the time. But when I come here, I want to see you. <laughs> I love to see your faces, I love to see your nods and your amens and your smiles, and I even sometimes love to see your frowns. <laughs> At least I'm touching some kind of nerve, you know. <laughs> I want to see your face. And I know my face is ugly, I know it's ugly, and getting uglier every day the older I get. But I want you to see my face because I want to preach to you. Brother Luke, Brother Neil, the other brothers, we want to speak to you. It's not about you seeing me. When I speak to you, I want to tell you about the Lord. You see, that's what the Lord wants you to hear, wants you to know. Christ said to Peter, he said, feed my lambs. You get that? What are you going to feed them? He's not talking about physical food. He's talking about the word of God. Peter, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Why is the church small and getting smaller? It's because people don't want to see Jesus. They want to see entertainment. They want to see concerts. They want to see shows. They want to be entertained. And how many times have I said, worship is not about being entertained. Worship is about us entertaining God. Amen. See? Entertaining God with your full attention with your heart focused on, I want to see Jesus. I want to hear what He says about me in His Word. And sometimes that can be a little unnerving and disturbing. I don't read your mail, but God does. I don't have a camera in your house to know what's going on with your life, but God does. The old saying we used to say in football, you know, the big eye in the sky don't lie. If He catch you on film, you're caught, you know. The Lord sees everything. And who knows, the Lord may burden the preacher sometime to deal with exactly what you are dealing with. That's a mercy of God. That's not God stepping on your toes. That's because God loves you. He wants you to see His face. Christ said, feed my lambs. What? Feed them truth. You see, the Father seeketh such to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Listen now. Was the Lord seeking Cornelius in Acts the 10th chapter? Cornelius was a godly man, Roman centurion. He's praying. He's worshiping. He's doing the best he knows how. 
And he has a vision in the night. He's a born again child of God. And the Lord is seeking that man right there as the first of the Romans who would have the truth of God. And in the middle of the night, the Lord comes to him in a dream and gives him a vision and says, Cornelius, I've heard your prayers. I've seen the, the things that you're doing in the community. And I want you to call. Why didn't God just tell him right there? You know, why didn't God just say, OK, this is what I want you to do? No, he said, I want you to rise up in the morning and go send men for Peter and get Peter to come down here and do what? Preach to you. That's the pattern that God wants. He wanted Peter to come and preach to Cornelius. And so that was a big deal. Now, that was a very big deal for a Jewish man to go down and preach to a Roman centurion, to a Roman. And so, you know, the story there, God sends Peter down there to Cornelius. And as soon as Peter walks in the door, Cornelius sees Peter coming in and he falls down and begins to worship Peter. He's a little off base, isn't he? You know, he falls down, he starts worshiping. He starts licking the hand of, of what he thought was his master. And Peter says, get up, get up. I'm a man just like you. Get up. Let me tell you what you need to be doing. And Peter goes on and tells him about the church of God, about the sacrifice of Christ, about how he ought to be worshiping. And Cornelius never again worshiped Peter. You see? Oh, isn't God good? <laughs> you know, God could have said, he fell down in front of Peter. Boom, I'm going to wipe him out. Praise God. That's not how the Lord works. He's merciful. He could have told Peter. He could have said, now, Peter. Uh, he could have said, now, Cornelius, I don't want you to fall down and worship Peter when he gets there. But the Lord left that like it was for the man to follow up on what he said. And here comes Peter. Cornelius falls down and worships Peter. How many people of God today are worshiping preachers? Are worshiping a building? Are worshiping finances? Are worshiping entertainment? Are worshiping whatever? Fill in the blank. Worshiping work. Whatever it might be. And the Lord calls upon us. He seeks you to worship Him. It's very simple. Jeremiah 12 and 9. In an Old Testament reference to the church of God, the Lord said, Mine inheritance is unto me as a speckled bird. <laughs> the birds round about are against her. Come ye, assemble all the beasts of the field. Come to devour. Many pastures have destroyed my vineyard. They have trodden my portion underfoot. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. They have made it desolate. And being desolate, it mourneth unto me. The whole land is made desolate because no man layeth it to heart. Oh, child of grace, I pray that you'll lay this to heart here this morning. That the Lord has a church in this world. That the Lord seeks the children of God to worship Him in a very simple manner. In spirit, the breath that you have. To give that breath of praise to the Lord. To give that thought in your mind to the Lord for that period of time in which the church comes together for public worship. To give that to Him because He is worthy of it, you see. And to worship Him not just in your mind and in your breath and in your praises and in your prayers, but in truth also you see there's a key to that right there the Lord seeks you in order to embrace his truth and worship him in spirit and in truth that's what Jesus told the woman at the well he was seeking her you get that Jesus said I've got an appointment I've got an appointment over here in Samaria the apostles were like what why are we going through Samaria we don't have anything to do with those folks Jesus said I've got an appointment with a little child of God over there who is an outcast in her community who is shunned by all those around her and he goes and he spends that precious time with her and I tell you it changed her life that woman went back into the city she said come see a man that told me all that I ever knew come and see a man that knew every little detail about my life and he saw me out. I tell you, if you feel like you're an outcast, if you feel like you don't have a place in this world, well then praise God you join right in there with the woman at the well. Praise God you join right in with Cornelius. Praise God you join in with other children of God throughout the centuries who have searched and searched and searched and they couldn't quite find what they were looking for and come to find out the Lord seeketh such to worship Him. 
Isn't that amazing? God is looking for you, child of God. He's not looking for you to save you from hell. He's already done that on the cross. He's looking for you to praise Him and worship Him right here, right now. And there's no better way to do that than become a part of the church. We give that opportunity as we stand and sing.